The National Science Foundation has awarded a $90-plus million grant with the purpose of improving understanding of weather. It went to the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, and the result will be an airborne phased radar giving 3D pictures of weather phenomena. Here with the details, NSF's Chief Officer for Research Facilities, Linnea Avalon. Ms. Avalon, good to have you on. Yeah, thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. And first of all, the program under which this grant was made is something called the... Mid-Scale Research Infrastructure Track 2. Thank you. You beat me to it. And what is that? <laughs> Make it easy for you. <laughs> Let's t- tell us about that program, first of all. Certainly, yeah. So our Mid-Scale Research Infrastructure Program was first put in place in 2018, and it was specifically designed to fill a funding gap between two long-standing programs, one for major facilities, things that cost more than about $100 million, and our major research instrumentation program, which funds mostly single instruments up to a cost of about 4 or $5 million. Got it. And the group to which this grant went, the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, UCAR, what is that? UCAR is a consortium of about 120 universities and institutions that do work or educate in atmospheric sciences. And UCAR is the managing organization for the National Center of Atmospheric Research based in Boulder, Colorado. They've been in existence almost as long as the Science Foundation has, so since the early 1960s. And what do you hope to get from this grant? I mean, phased arrays of radar is nothing new. That's a technology the military and I think some of the civilian agencies, NASA and NOAA, already use. So what are you expecting to come from this? Right. That's a great question. So phased array radar, as you said, has been around for military use for quite some time. But we've actually never used it really for scientific purposes to study clouds, to study severe storms. So what this technology will do is replace existing and some retired radars that have been used for atmospheric research for many decades with much higher resolution, spatial and temporal resolution observations. So UCAR will be retrofitting existing equipment with the means to become more accurate? Not exactly. They're actually developing a whole new radar. So it's a different wavelength of radar than you're normally used to seeing. So for example, National Weather Service radars use what's called S-band, and that's a 10 centimeter wavelength. This technology will use C-band, Charlie, which is a five centimeter wavelength. So it's a completely different wavelength. And these will actually be implemented as flat panels that are mounted on the sides, top, and tailgate of a C-130 aircraft. And where does the C-130 come from? So NSF owns a C-130 aircraft that's also based at NCAR. It's been highly modified to do atmospheric research. And it's white, not gray. It is white and blue. (laughs) Okay. So by going from 10 centimeters to 5 centimeters, it sounds like, and I'm just thinking about this, you get more than a simple doubling of the resolution. Oh, absolutely. It has less to do with the wavelength than it has to do with the technology itself. So if you think about an image of a weather radar that you've seen, right, it's a dish that's spinning. And so that gives you spatial information as the dish spins. With phased array, you have a panel that has many thousands of very small transmitters and receivers, not just the single big dish that focuses that energy in, but an array of small transmitters and receivers. 
And those actually allow much higher spatial and temporal resolution. They can be operated very quickly, electronically. There are no moving parts. So it's a really great advancement in what we'll be able to do. And just a goofy question. It sounds like you'll have to cut holes in the plane to get the signals inside. That's exactly right. Yes, there will have to be some relatively modest holes in the side of the aircraft for energy power to go out and signals to come in. We're speaking with Linnea Avalone. She's chief officer for research facilities at the National Science Foundation. And the grant recipient, UCAR, this consortium of colleges, sounds like you've got hardware, software, and lots of other development to occur simultaneously to create this system. Correct. So the National Science Foundation and NOAA have actually been funding the early development of this technology for a number of years. Uh, So it's pretty mature. And this award will actually allow UCAR to go out and purchase the phased array radar panels from industry and do the installation on the aircraft, do the final development of software, and do all the testing for deployment. Now, this will forever change your aircraft, the one that you have. And it will. And Science Foundation's okay with that. Yeah, the panels can be taken off, right? So it's not a permanent change. Yes, cutting the holes in the side of the plane will, will be a permanent change, but that's all done according to FAA requirements. So it's very safe. But yes, the panels can be added and taken off for different types of projects. All right. Well, maybe an extra pitot tube can plug the holes in the meantime until the panels (laughs) go back. And what is the effect of all of this? What will learnings do you expect to happen when this thing is flying that are not possible now when looking at clouds and atmospheric phenomena? Right. So I think the fundamental thing here is to get something in the air, right? So most of our research radars sit on the ground. And that means that you are limited to observing the weather that comes your way, right? With a certain distance that you can see from that radar. If we put this radar on an aircraft, we can take it to places that don't have ground. For example, we can fly it out over the ocean. So we can be studying hurricanes as they develop and strengthen and intensify. There's a lot to be learned about processes that cause hurricanes to intensify that we don't fully understand. We can also go to the high latitudes and study severe winter storms, areas that don't really have good radar coverage. And we can get close within safety margins to storms that are spawning tornadoes, for example. So we expect to be able to get a lot more information about the physical processes that are happening in these storm systems. And do you expect the processing of all of that data gathering to occur on board or downloaded later when the plane lands and then sent to a supercomputer? Yeah, there'll be a little bit of both. So there'll be some real-time analysis of the data to help guide the flight track of the aircraft, but then the real detailed work will be done on the ground. Now, there are planes, I think NOAA operates them, that you see them, you know, sometimes on television when there's a hurricane and they fly into the eye and it's gorgeous and then they fly through the outer side of the uh, hurricane and it's a mess again. Do those planes or could those also benefit from this? Once you build one, then you can replicate it. Absolutely. And that's, I think, I don't want to speak for NOAA, but I, I know that that's what they're hoping for, right? So that's one of the reasons that NOAA has invested in the development of this technology. The planes that you described, they're P3s, and they have a fairly limited lifetime. NOAA expects to retire them, I would say, in the early 2030s. They are currently equipped with an older radar technology, 
And NOAA is very much hoping that this APAR technology will prove successful and that they will be able to adopt it for their next generation hurricane reconnaissance aircraft. Because there's also the P-8, which is a jet. And can Correct. this technology, I mean, a C-130 and a P-3 are roughly the same speed because they're prop driven. Right. Can this work on a jet that goes faster? I think in principle, it could work on a jet. I'm not sure what the aerodynamics are of putting such thing on a jet that would fly faster. Uh, right. Yeah. A so, lot of engineering. Yeah, somebody would have to look at that. Interesting. And so what's the timeline and when would you expect this to start flying and seeing what it sees? Yeah, so we are expecting that things will be ready to fly in about five years, uh, so in 2028. And I would say, you know, pending successful demonstration that other folks could be adopting that technology within a couple of years thereafter. Linnea Avalone is Chief Officer for Research Facilities at the National Science Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And, David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with 
bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to 
be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we have been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.